0: If you have God's Word, please turn to Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 3, as we work our way through this great, great epistle, and as we turn our attention to Christ and His spoken Word, we come to a a very important section here in Hebrews chapter 3, and we will be looking at verses 1 to verse 6, Hebrews chapter 3, verse 1 to verse 6. And may God plant his eternal word into our souls. Therefore, holy brethren, partakers of a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession. He was faithful to him who appointed him, as Moses also was in all his house. For he has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, by just so much as the builder of the house has more glory than the house. For every house is built by someone but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all his house as a servant for a testimony of those things which were to be spoken later. But Christ was faithful as a son over his house, whose house we are, if we hold fast our confidence and the boast of our hope firm until the end. Bow with me in a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for your holy word And we thank You for the special way that You reveal Your Word to us today. For in these last days, You have spoken to us in His Son, Your Son. And You have confirmed Your Word to us by Your Holy Spirit. Establish Your Word in our hearts, we pray. Cause it to plant deeply into our souls that we might cherish You all the more and we might consider Christ more fervently. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. I remember once uh, reading a Table Talk article from Ligonier, if you guys are familiar with that, the ministry founded by the late R.C. Sproul. And it was an article written by Sinclair Ferguson. And the title of the article was, Hebrews, does it do anything for you? And in the introduction of his article, Ferguson said that Hebrews, to a lot of people, is like the response of someone he heard of at a Christian conference that he was speaking at. And one listener apparently full of the blessings of the sermon and the passage of Scripture being expounded, he turned to his neighbor with some positive comments on the whole address. He said, wasn't that great? And he received a somewhat chilling reply, didn't do anything for me. And then Sinclair went on in the article to say that he suspected that if we too were to do some kind of random survey on the New Testament, Philippians, a book of joy, Romans, full of doctrines and grace, James, full of practical counsel, would fare well as favorites of those in the New Testament. But the mention of Hebrews might evoke some, does nothing for me, responses. Then Sinclair asks, is Hebrew too different? Too alien in thought? Too Old Testament-ish? For whatever reason, Ferguson says that Hebrews, outside of some occasional verses about temptation faith, or running the race, Hebrews rarely stands high on the list of the most beloved parts of the New Testament. But then he went on to say that there is no letter in the New Testament that tells us more about Jesus Christ and his work. Chapter after chapter unfolds the glories of Jesus Christ. But perhaps this is a reason why in our our generation, we are not as familiar with Hebrews as we ought to be. Because when you consider what is being read by this generation... We can easily see that the bestsellers aren't books on titles such as The Unsearchable Riches of Christ or Christ Set Forth, The Glory of Christ. But what is it that sells today? What puts the smiles on the book of the publisher's face? The book that is about the reader. People want to read about themselves. Self-help books. Self-esteem building blocks. Or if you consider how this generation talks or the engagement in social media you can't help but notice, and if that is, if you are noticing, the self focus and the self glorification of it all. And this has bled into the church, and perhaps most apparent in the loss of the focus of the gospel in the songs we sing. Now, without commenting on musical styles and tastes, but simply an observation about the lyrical content of much that is being sung today, in many churches, congregations have begun to sing about themselves and how they are feeling rather than about God and Christ and his glory. And it's not just this self-focus that we are consumed by today. We naturally gravitate, it seems, toward anything but Jesus, even if they are good topics like Christian worldview and topics like apologetics or focusing on the family and education. As wonderful and helpful as these topics are, they have a tendency to nudge Jesus to the side. But life is not primarily about self or education, or in the number of good topics to consider. For to me, to live is Christ, said the Apostle Paul. We proclaim Him is the heartbeat of the ministry of the New Testament. The center, the cornerstone, the focus of Christianity is Jesus Christ. Without Christ, there is no Christianity. It is only Christian to the extent that it is about Him and how our lives and our ministries are governed by Him. And so in our me-centered generation i'd argue that most if not all of our problems and our struggles and our errors of thinking come precisely in our failure to forget christ and to lose the vision of christ this is the greatest value of the book of hebrews as a writer encourages and exhorts us to consistently turn our gaze to christ the author and finisher of our faith this is what we've been doing in our study thus far the first two chapters Looking unto Jesus in his supremacy over all things, his glory in his divinity, his splendor in his humanity, in order to bring many sons to glory. And this Christ-focused vision is emphatically stated in the opening passage of chapter 3. Therefore, holy brethren, partakers of a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, I want you to turn over to chapter 12, verse 2. The writer at the end of Hebrews says something very similar in a rather striking similar construction. And he says they're fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith. One can argue that these two verses, each one from one of the two main sections of this book, lies at the heart and the purpose of this letter. That we are to fix our gaze upon Jesus in order to persevere to the end. The readers are on the verge of forgetting Christ. They are on the brink of abandoning him. And so they are encouraged then to consider Jesus. This is the central thought of the whole letter. And this is the central thrust of tonight's sermon. For you and I to consider Jesus and to make certain that this is a great aim in our lives. Now, in order to give you an overview of where we're going tonight, I'd like to first consider some reasons why we are to consider Jesus, and then how. How are we to consider Jesus? Let me first give you some reasons why we need to consider Jesus, and there are five of these, I believe. Number one, because of the wonderful privileges that come from being a Christian. Now, we see this particularly in the way the writer of Hebrews directly addresses his audience. Now until this point, the author had included himself among his readers. He said, us and we. But now he's about to address them directly by saying, you consider. And yet the separating of himself from calling them you had no holier-than-thou implication, but he's seeking to grab their attention. And in a forceful, yet in a pastoral-sensitive way, he points them to their sacred privileges. In the midst of their temptation, he says, you remember the security and the privileges that belong to you who truly know Christ. And these sacred privileges they have, and we as Christians have, is an understanding that we are holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling. Now the word holy summarizes the defining characteristic of God's people. To call the people of God holy points back to the thought in chapter 2, 11, for both he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified are all from one Father. Those who are sanctified, we learned, are so because the one who sanctifies shed his blood and atoned for their sins. The description of being holy ones does not imply in any way that we are holy in and of ourselves, but rather sanctified by Christ and his blood, and therefore we are set apart by God. But not only are they called holy, but we are holy brethren. Now we naturally go back to chapter 2 where the author points to this most wonderful privilege that we are included in the most intimate of relationships whereby Jesus' sufferings, he is not ashamed to call them brethren. Do we realize this of us? Do we realize what this means? Do we realize the privilege of all this That this blessed person, Jesus Christ, is not ashamed to call us brothers and sisters. By nature, we have nothing in common with Jesus. By nature, we are an embarrassment to him. Nothing in us that remotely resembles who Jesus is. By nature, we are as a cause of shame. And Jesus has every reason to be ashamed of us. And while Jesus perfectly mirrors the image of the glory of God, we have spoiled it. While Jesus has served and obeyed his father in perfect and joyful obedience, we have rebelled against him. Yet the the writer of Hebrews tells us that despite the zero commonality that we have with Jesus, he is not ashamed to call us brethren. Now prior to telling this, the writer of Hebrews describes the extent to which Christ worked in order to work in a relationship with us to not be ashamed of. He took our nature he assumed our humanity. He entered into our experience. Since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same in order to destroy the powers that makes us objects of shame in the sight of the glorious God. Our elders, elder brother's ultimate goal was to bring many sons to glory. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brethren. It is a marvelous thought when we stop and consider When you think of Jesus, who has passed through the heavens and who is sitting at the right hand of the majesty on high, who carries our names in his heart and our elder brother is our advocate and he stands before the heavenly father and he proudly says of us, these are my brothers and sisters, that's who we are. And would we not conduct ourselves in a manner that one should, who realizes that this blessed Savior? is not ashamed to call us brethren. Why, if we realize this privilege about our brotherly relationship with Jesus, would we not continue looking to him for help? But in addition to the privilege of being holy brethren, we need to realize that we are partakers of a heavenly calling. Now, you will not find this phrase, partakers of a heavenly calling, anywhere else in the New Testament. It is unique to Hebrews. The origin of the call is God, our Father in heaven, who has called us to himself and called us to be part of his family. And as those who are his children, we have been called to heaven, or as the writer of Hebrews later puts it, to the heavenly Jerusalem, to a better country, a heavenly one, Hebrews eleven sixteen. And so this heavenly calling has a double direction. It's a calling from heaven, and it's a calling to heaven. It's a voice that comes from God and calls us back to God. Its origin comes from heaven and its goal is heavenly. And so these tempted and tried Hebrew Christians were to remember that their security is in heaven and that their goal in life was heavenly and that it was all secured by the power of God. And by looking unto Jesus, it would provide the great encouragement that they needed. Beloved, holy brethren. Do we realize that we too are partakers of a heavenly calling? That our call is from heaven and our call is back to heaven? And if so, has this call lifted up your hearts towards heavenly things? Has it lifted up your taste and desires so that they are no longer groveling in the world but choosing the things that are of God? For this reason then, we must look to Jesus. But the second reason provided by, in Hebrews, why we need to look to Jesus is because Jesus is the apostle and the high priest of our confession. Now with this word, therefore, in verse 3, the author not only looks back to the logical conclusions in chapter 2 and links some previous section by addressing his readers as holy brethren, but he now introduces a new unit, something new to consider of Jesus. And the author gives two titles to Jesus that are unique to him, Apostle and High Priest. Now these two titles sum up what the author has already said about Jesus thus far and what he is about to say about him in the next few chapters. And to give Christ the title Apostle is without parallel in the New Testament. No one else in the New Testament ever calls Jesus an Apostle. The writer of Hebrews reserves the word Apostle for Christ alone. And the word for apostle means one who is sent. And Jesus repeatedly describes himself as being sent by the Father into the world. This is especially a description that he gives himself in the Gospel of John, most notably in the high priestly prayer in John 17:3, where he prays, This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus, whom you have sent. In this sense, then, Jesus is the first apostle the great apostle, and the source of all apostleship. Now in the Greek word, apostle frequently means ambassador. And so Jesus is the supreme ambassador of God, one who comes to represent God, one who speaks on behalf of God and comes with the authority of God. But he not only calls Jesus the apostle, but also the great high priest. Now this is something we just looked at in the latter half of Hebrews 2, and something that the re- writer of Hebrews will talk about in much more fuller detail. But for now, we want to set down a fundamental meaning. Now, the Latin word for prefix is pontiflex, which means a bridge builder. The priest, then, is the person who builds a bridge between men and God. Now, who else can be the perfect great high priest to fulfill the role of Jesus, then Jesus Christ, who is both God and man, and therefore he, as truly God and truly man, can perfectly represent us to God. Now when you put these two titles, apostle and high priest together, something remarkable is revealed about Jesus. He was sent from the Father to us, fulfilling the role of an apostle, and he goes back to the Father as our representative fulfilling the role of the priest. If I can give you a visual, Jesus is faced toward us as an apostle who is sent to represent God before men and to speak and act on his behalf. But as a high priest, Jesus is turned toward the face of God to represent us and to speak on our behalf. Is there anyone like him? who represents God to us and simultaneously represents us back to God? And if we partakers of the heavenly calling, those who are called from heaven and called to heaven, it is to Jesus then, the apostle and the great high priest we must look to. But here's a third reason we are to look to Jesus. Because he is the faithful architect of God's house. Now, one of the reasons the writer of Hebrews may have given Jesus the title apostle here is the comparison that he wants to draw with Moses. Now, was it not Moses who saw the glory of God in the burning bush? You remember that? Where the Lord called unto Moses and he said in Exodus 3.10, Come now, I will send you to Pharaoh so that you may bring my people, the sons of Israel, out of Egypt. And, And then Moses asked, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh that you would bring my people out of Egypt? And he further asked, you know, what is the name that I should tell the Israelites when they ask who it is that sent me? God then reveals his covenant keeping name and said to Moses, I am who I am. Tell the sons of Israel, I am has sent me to you. And so although Moses was never called an apostle, since he was sent by God to Israel, the writer of Hebrews seems to launch into a comparison to demonstrate that Christ, is the better Moses. And this is the first truth in demonstrating and showing that Jesus is the first architect of God's house. Look at verse 2. It says, He was faithful to him who appointed him, as Moses also was in all his house. Now here you need to appreciate in verse 2 what the writer is doing. He is setting up his readers so that there will be no argument as who is greater. When verse 2 is taken at face value, Moses, as well as Jesus, are declared to be faithful to God. At no point in this discussion in verse 2 is any suggestion made that Jesus was more faithful than Moses. All the author is saying here is that Jesus was faithful to God as Father, even as Moses was. You see, he's disarming them at this point because the writer knew how enamored they were with Moses to the point of forsaking Christ and returning to the old ways of Judaism. Perhaps the author of Hebrews asked his readers, Was not Moses faithful to God? And they would all resoundingly say yes. They would consider the words that God spoke to Aaron and Miriam in the presence of Moses. If you turn back to Numbers chapter 12, Numbers chapter 12, 6 to 7. I know that some of us are tracking the Bible reading plan in Numbers, so this may be familiar to you. Numbers chapter 12, 6 to 7. He spoke this to Aaron and Miriam, in front of Moses, he said, Hear now my words. If there is a prophet among you, I, the Lord, shall make myself known to him in a vision. I shall speak with him in a dream. Not so with my servant Moses. He is faithful in all my household. And so as they thought about Numbers 12, 6-7, they would consider the uniqueness of Moses especially with the directness with which God spoke to him in contrast with the prophets that would come later. With Moses, God said, he speaks to him mouth to mouth, not in riddles or visions. It would have been impossible to conceive that anyone ever stood closer to God than Moses did. There's even a passage that comes from the Exodus by Ezekiel, cited by Eusebius, in which Moses has shown in a dream that he will be placed on a heavenly throne, invested with crown and, and glory and scepter. In Jewish thought, then, Moses was incredibly influential. There was no doubt of the unique position that Moses had in all the New to Old Testament. He was faithful in all of God's household. But then all the comparison between Jesus and Moses breaks down when the author makes this point in verses 3 and 4 concerning glory. For he has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, by just so much as the builder of the house has more honor than the house. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now as great as Moses was, he was only a part of the house of God. Christ is the builder of the house. One may marvel at a beautiful building and even appreciate the different parts of the building, but it's obvious that the credit belongs to the architect, and the builder. And so while Moses is a truly great figure, an integral person in God's plan of salvation was nonetheless a member of the household. Christ was the builder of the household. He is therefore altogether different. And here the author is again pointing to the deity of Christ. God is the builder. Jesus is said to be the builder of a house. Therefore, Jesus is God. Therefore, The author's argument is that there really is no comparison between Jesus and Moses because we are talking about two different categories. Jesus constructs the spiritual house of God. Moses was a faithful servant in God's house. Jesus is the founder of God's household. Moses himself belongs to that household. We are then to look to Jesus because as the faithful architect, he cannot and will not fail in its purposes. Now, while you may think that these Hebrew Christians were foolish in putting their trust in Moses rather than the one who built the house, I want you to consider all the ways that we may be trusting in man rather than giving heed to God. This is especially a danger of our generation that puts too much trust in therapists, counselors, pastors, teachers, and so-called experts, as great and as influential as counselors and therapists and pastors and church growth experts are, we must look to Christ and trust in Him and in no other. Otherwise, we will be trusting in a creature rather than in God. Christ far surpasses any human figure for He is God and it is to Him we must keep, keep looking and trusting. And you see, if you are not a believer here today, You may be one of those atheistic kinds who says there is no God, but our passage supports the argument of the existence of God. If every earthly house shows the design and the craft of a builder and architect, well, how much more does the universe reflect in its complexity and its interrelatedness a mind and a hand that put it all together? the mind and the hand belongs to Jesus as Hebrews 1-2 mentions, through whom also he made the world. And if Jesus is the builder of everything, should you not consider Jesus non-Christian and trust in him? Will you continue trusting in yourself? And in our efforts to consider Jesus, the author provides a fourth fourth reason why we need to look unto him. For he is the son over God's house. The author continues to answer the question, wherein does the superiority of Jesus over Moses lie? And the author once again points to Moses' faithfulness in God's house. And this time he points to Moses' role and title as a servant. Now this word servant is not the normal word for servant we find in the New Testament where we associate that word with the office of a deacon. This title, servant, occurs only here in the New Testament, and it is only used of Moses in the Greek translation of the Old Testament. This title carries overtones of dignity and honor, and it describes a position, a unique position that Moses held amongst the Old Covenant people. It is difficult to overestimate the importance of Moses in the unfolding plan of God's salvation. Arguably, Moses is the most significant Old Testament figure because of his unique role as the mediator of the Old Covenant. Abraham and David were certainly significant covenant figures, but in Old Covenant terms, only Moses could claim the role of God's mediator. And in this sense, Moses is the only parallel to Jesus Christ, who is the mediator of a new and better covenant. Even the great reformer, biblical theologian, Gerhardus Voss, In acknowledgment of Moses' vital and unique role in God's plan, stated that Moses may be fitly called the Redeemer of the Old Testament. Now, though these two mediators are inextricably connected, there is no doubt that Jesus eclipses Moses in every single regard. Because for one, Moses was like John the Baptist who constantly pointed to Christ. It says there in verse 5 that one of the most important elements of Moses' stewardship as a servant was that of a witness, not of himself, as though he were the end and fulfillment of God's purposes, but it says a testimony of those things which were to be spoken later. For example, in Deuteronomy 18.15, Moses promised that there would be another like Moses, one who in the future would carry a higher revelation than he, he, he would Where it says there, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your countrymen. You shall listen to him. And so the author of Hebrews is making the argument that if Moses were alive today and that he were to write to them directly, he would tell them the very thing that is emphasized in this letter, to consider Jesus, to look to Jesus. In fact, Moses did write such a letter. He wrote the first five books of the Old Testament, and its true focal point is Jesus Christ. Moses, says the Puritan John Owen, gave testimony to the things of the gospel, and this was the true and proper end of a whole ministry of Moses. And it is Jesus, of course, that affirms this when he rebukes his interrogators in John 5.46 when he says, if you believe Moses, you will believe me for he wrote of me. And so the status of Moses was not without dignity, but he was nevertheless a servant that that pointed beyond himself to the one who would fulfill God's promises. Christ, however, occupies a vastly different position in God's house of believers. Verse six, but Christ was faithful as a son over his house. And therein lies the superiority of Jesus over Moses. Moses was the servant. Jesus was the son. Moses could only participate in and foreshadow redemption, but Jesus actually accomplished redemption for his people. Moses knew very little about God. Jesus was God. Moses, as a servant, was faithful in God's house, whereas Jesus, as a son, was faithful over God's house. Now, don't let these little prepositions brush past us. For there is a world of difference between in the house and over the house. For Moses did not create the house. He only served in it. Jesus is the creator of the house and he stands above the house itself. But what is this house that the author is speaking of? The writer emphatically declares, we are his house. We are the house where Christ as the Son provides over and is building. It is the redeemed humanity who is to be the dwelling place of God. Now, if you are one of those that love the authorized version, you'll see that it says his own house. There is no word own in the text, and the inclusion of it can be misleading. Sometimes the conclusion that is drawn from his own house is that Christ was over a different house from Moses' house, and, and then so two houses are in view. And it is often alleged that the author is then contrasting the inferior mosaic order and administration and the superior administration introduced by Christ and his apostles. But that is not what the author is saying at all. You can see this clearly for yourself in the argument made in verse 3. There is but one house of God, and Moses served in that house, but Christ built it. Whose house we are then makes it clear that Christian believers are also involved into this house of God. There are differences of course between the Old Testament Israel and the New Testament church, but those differences ought not to erase the basic continuity of the one house of God. As Homer Kent writes, the best understanding sees one house through this passage. It is God's house. The household of faith including true believers from the Old Testament period as well as the uh, New uh, Testament era. Now, very practically, to hear that we are his house would have been a great encouragement to the original readers because many of them no longer had a house. They didn't have a church building. They had become the church building. And as Peter writes, you also as living stones are being built up as a spiritual house. Or as Paul says in Ephesians, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole building being fitted together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God in the spirit. The church, the author of Hebrews reminds us, is far more inside than it is outside. And so he's encouraging them to look at themselves and their privileges through the right end of their telescope in order to consider Jesus as the one who presides over them. And so that as the church, they would find their efficiency and their all in all from Christ. This exhortation to consider Jesus as the church is very important because he is the son who presides over it. That means... That all the blessings, all the enjoyments, all the growth and spiritual health in the church are from Christ and in him alone. If Christ be not present, if Christ is not presiding over his house in the gathering of his people, then no church work is done at all. You see, God's people are not enlightened, refreshed and sanctified in all of our activities as a church. If Christ by his spirit is not present in the midst of them and so the church can only be the church as god's house in so far as her ministry is about him as she preaches him sings of him ministers and serves in his name and guided by his heavenly wisdom oh pillar baptist church may we never lose this focus may we vigorously and zealously guard this priority to remember that christ presides over his house as a son but there's a fifth reason why we must consider jesus because he is the key to enduring to the end you'll notice that the author puts it in a rather striking way after emphatically stating that we are his house the house that christ is faithful over as a son he says whose house we are if We hold fast our confidence and the boast of our hope firm until the end. Now, that is kind of a striking way that the author puts it because you would think that he would do it the other way around. We are God's house, therefore, we will hold fast our confidence. But he says we are God's house if, on the condition that, we hold fast in this confidence and persevere to the end. Now, we think this author must surely be getting mixed up. But no, he repeats himself in verse 14, for we have become partakers of Christ if we hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm until the end. He's saying that something is true of us now only if it is something that is true of us in the future. Well, how can that be? You know, someone came up to me after preaching on the danger of drifting and asked about what about once saved, always saved? Don't we believe in this once saved, always saved? And I'd answer yes. That is, if you are once saved. F.F. F. Bruce puts the matter clearly. The doctrine of the final perseverance of the saints has as its corollary the salutary teaching that the saints are the people who persevere to the end. Listen, there is no conflict between the teaching that all believers are safe in the hands of God that nothing can separate us from the love of Christ, and that our eternal security is not dependent on us, but on Christ, on his merits alone, and also the teaching that Christians must persevere in the faith. Security in Christ does not absolve one from personal responsibility. Quite the opposite, actually. For the regenerate man, one who is a new creation, is under a new obligation to God. Say it another way, we are saved by faith alone. But it is also true that the authenticity of our faith is proved by being firm until the end. This is entirely in line with the teaching of Jesus when he said, if you continue in my word, you are truly my disciples. So the question is not once saved, always saved, but are you saved? Were you once saved? Or was it simply a confidence that you had in yourself? Or was it that you were carried by the atmosphere of Christianity without actually becoming a Christian yourself? The great evidence that you are once saved is that you are going on in your faith, persevering through all the trials and temptations, fixing your eyes on Jesus. But on the other hand, one of the dangerous signs of not being firm unto the end is losing sight of Christ, not holding on to Him. It ought to alarm us if we went throughout this whole week never once thought of Christ. Let it be said that those who persevere to the end are not those who never wavers, never doubts, never is cowardly. Even as we heard from the psalmist's confession in Psalm 119, He has gone astray like a lost sheep, but He is not lost forever because He is still a sheep and as Christ's sheep, they hear his voice and follow him. The key to endurance then is to look to Jesus, to consider Jesus, to hold on to Jesus. And so there is encouragement to consider Jesus as well as a solemn warning if we fail to look to him. Now this solemn warning of not persevering to the end is something that is stressed in the next section. So instead of giving admonitions and warnings, I'd like to encourage and I'd like to exhort you to consider considering Jesus. If there are great reasons that we have provided, that was provided by the author of Hebrews in why we must consider Jesus, how are we to do it? How do we consider Jesus? Now if we come back to this word in verse 1 to consider, we can see that this word is actually full of great meaning. It does not mean simply to look at or notice a thing. Anyone can look and notice something without even really seeing it. The word consider means to give thoughtful attention to, a continuous observation and regard. It means to give thoughtful and continuous contemplation in such a way that its inner and deeper meaning may be learned. You know, in Luke twelve twenty four, Jesus uses the same word when he says, Consider the ravens. He doesn't merely mean to look or notice the ravens, but he means look and consider the ravens and understand the lesson that God is seeking to teach you through them that they are provided for by God, that you are much more valuable than they. And if we are then to consider Jesus in this way, it entails a concentrated gaze upon him. A detached glance is never enough. There must be this lingering gaze Listen to how the great English expositor Alexander McLaren put it. You will never see Jesus Christ if you look at him only by snatches for a moment and then turn away the eye from him. We must sit before him and be content to give time to the gaze if we are to get anything good out of it. Nobody sees the beauties of a country who hurries through it in an express train. These passing glances, which are all that so many of us can spare for the master, are of little use of him revealing him to us. And then he says, you do not feel Mont Blanc unless you sit and gaze and let their fair vision soak into your souls and you cannot understand Jesus Christ nor see anything in him unless you deal with him in like fashion. Considering Jesus then requires time, my brothers and sisters. And it will be very appropriate to ask, what fills your time throughout the day? I'm not asking about the duties and the responsibilities that you have in your job, as a parent, as a student, but what about the downtime, The time after putting the kids to sleep? The time you give in between your things to do? The time in driving and commuting? What fills your time then? Are we too busy to consider Jesus? Too distracted to concentrate on Jesus so that we cannot focus on Him For more than one minute. If to consider Jesus means to have a lengthy concentration on him, then to consider also means that it requires great effort. You will have to shut things out in order to gaze on his beauty. Now, have you guys ever rolled up a piece of paper, put it in your eye and shut out everything on either side so that you can focus on that object? I'm sure you guys have done that as a kid. This is the kind of effort that is required. We have to look away. We have to deliberately shut out some things from our purview if we want to be clear-sighted of Christ. Now, the words of John Brown are deeply pertinent here. It is because we think so little and to so little purpose on Christ that we know so little about him and that we love him so little, trust him so little, and so often neglect our duty and are so much influenced by things seen and temporal and so little by things unseen and eternal. It is because men do not know Christ that they do not love him. It is because they don't know him so they know him so imperfectly that they love him so imperfectly. Do you agree with that this evening? Is that true of you? The eyes of our flesh must be closed to the things seen and temporal, and the eyes of the Spirit must be open to the things unseen and eternal, and this takes decisive effort. And one last thing in how to consider Jesus. It entails looking to Jesus and not on myself. There is nothing more desecrating to our assurance and hope in Christ Nothing more paralyzing to its saving power than when we mix our own experience and look to ourselves as the ground of hope. The great error to many of our problems is this constant looking to myself. And when we think of spiritual things, we think of ourselves. This does not mean that we turn a blind eye to our sin and our weaknesses. Otherwise, we can never apply the warning of Hebrews If we hold fast to confidence, what it does mean is that though there may be despondency and despair over our own sin and shame, it should never cover his precious cross from our view. It means that while our eyes may be filled with tears of contrition, we are never let it to obscure the sight of his free and full salvation We should but realize the perception of our own emptiness in the steady contemplation of his unbounded fullness. I cannot put it any better than the Scottish preacher Robert Murray McShane who wrote to a friend with this advice. Learn much of the Lord Jesus for every look at yourself. Take 10 looks at Christ. For every look at yourself. Take 10 looks at Christ. So, beloved, if you struggle with faith, if you struggle with the assurance of faith, if you struggle with feeling unworthy, if you are tempted in any way, let me encourage you. Let Christ be the source of your confidence. Fix your thoughts on Jesus. Death has been defeated. Christ is the apostle sent by God to bring us to salvation. He is the great high priest who reconciles us to God. He is the architect of the house of God and we are his house. Let us then daily look unto him, holding fast to our confidence and the boast of our hope, firm until the end. Let's pray together. Our merciful and great high priest, You have taught us to consider You, to fix our thoughts on You, to look unto You. Forgive us, Lord, for thinking so little of You, trusting so little of You, and loving so little of You. Forgive us, Lord, for looking so much at ourselves and so much at the things that are seen and temporal. We look again unto You for mercy and for Your forgiving grace. Grant, O Lord, that we may distrust ourselves so that we may see our all in all in you. This we pray in your most holy name. Amen.